0: So let me start this week by asking a question, I just want you to think about this. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? What would you not be willing to do? There was a survey done a few years ago in the States, and hundreds of Americans were asked that question. They were given a list of options as to what they could do for $10 million in this hypothetical scenario, and two-thirds of the people said yes to at least one of the following options. Many of them said yes to more than one. So these were the options and the answers they gave. 25% of them said they would abandon their entire extended family, not including their spouse and kids, but parents, uh, cousins, uncles, aunts, they would abandon all of them. $10 million, (laughs) 25% said they'd abandon their church. And then it gets a little weirder, Uh, 23% said that they would become prostitutes for a week for $10 million. And this is where I thought it was interesting, and I've, you know, no offense if anyone here is from the states, but 16% said they would voluntarily give up their American citizenship. So more people were willing to abandon their families or to become a prostitute than not give, than to give up being an American, which I found interesting. Personally, um, I guess we're in a bit of a different country, but if I had to choose between being a prostitute for a week and giving up being a Canadian, I'd probably <laughs> choose the latter. <laughs> 16% said they would leave their spouse. 10% said they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. said they'd kill a stranger. And 3% said they would put up their children for adoption. $10 million can buy a lot of things, that's for sure. But what these people would be willing to give up for it reveals a lot about the destructive nature of greed. The fact that two-thirds of people who were interviewed would be willing to essentially torpedo major parts of their lives And what matters in life, just for money, reveals a lot about the nature of humanity. And many of the problems that we face in the world today can be traced back to greed. Greed is destructive, and and we see the effects of it all through our world and the way that we treat people on a daily basis. We see the effects of it in the way that we manage our finances. And we also see it on a corporate and national scale. Even if we generally are good stewards with our finances, and if we're generous in helping others, the very clothes on most of our backs, I would be willing to bet, in most cases were made by women and children in sweatshops in third-world countries, working for such low wages and with such long hours that they are essentially slaves. Companies and nations exploit third-world countries all over the world to save a few dollars and increase their profits. The effects of greed are not contained, they're destructive, and they spread like a sickness. When greed guides our decisions, sin and injustice will soon follow because greed is destructive. As Christians, we cannot live like that. We have to be different. And our lives need to reflect Jesus into the world in all that we do, and that includes our wallets, our time, and our stewardship. Every Christian must honor God with their finances because living in greed enables a system of sin and suffering. So this week we're in James 5, verses 1 to 6, and this is probably one of the most intense passages we have in James. Um, James, at no point in this letter, has let up on us. Uh, It's been very intense the whole way through, and this week is no different. So I'll read this passage in its entirety. He says, look here, you rich people. We've been grown with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated out of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You've fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Yikes. Okay, so... What I always like to do when we start studying scripture is to try and put ourselves in the shoes of the people who received the letter. So once upon a time in 70 AD in Palestine, there was a fairly small group of wealthy landowners who owned a very large amount of land. And I know I kind of started this like a story, but this is actually the context and facts of what was happening in the area at the time. Anyways, these rich landowners would buy or swallow up the lands of the smaller farmers and integrate it into their large states. And because of this, the poor small farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to the rich landowners because they were now their landlords. So in this time and age, poverty was very different than it is today in North America. In that time, you were paid at the end of each day and you would essentially make just enough money to buy a little bit of food for your family for that day's supper. And that's kind of where the term daily bread comes from in Scripture. You literally were asking God to provide your daily bread, your meal for the day. They didn't live week to week or month to month. They lived day to day financially. And so when these rich landlords would hold back the pay of the workers for even a day, their family would starve that night. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening at the time. Uh, We can kind of tell from our passage and from some of the historical facts and data that we have, uh, we do know that the rich class was exploiting the poor in the area, and they were cheating them, in a lot of cases, out of the pay that they had earned, uh, out of greed. They wanted to hold it back for themselves. So that's kind of the background for our passage. And once we see next week's passage, you're going to kind of see that this section we're studying today was not actually addressed to the recipients of the letter. It was actually addressed to the ones who were exploiting the recipients of the letter. So instead of being a warning, the people who received this letter would have read this with hope, knowing that God knew they were being cheated and exploited and that he was on their side. So let's read verse 1 and start looking at this. He says, Look here, you rich people. We've been grown with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. And to be clear, uh, just right as we start this, this is not just directed at anyone who is rich, uh, just those who were sinfully rich, those who hoarded at the expense of others, who cheated others out of what they were owed, and who did not use their wealth to help others, the unrighteous rich. Now that said, it wouldn't be wrong for us to ignore the fact that Uh, in Scripture, the rich and unrighteous are very often associated in Scripture. And that doesn't mean that everyone who's rich is sinful or unrighteous, but we are warned many times that money and wealth can be a particularly strong obstacle to true saving faith. I think, what was it, better? It's easier to go through the eye of a needle, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, is what Jesus said. And that doesn't mean that it's impossible, but it means that If your material wealth is stored up on earth and that's where your hope is, then it's very hard to put that aside and put your faith in God. So he says, weep and groan, or in uh, the original translations, weep and howl. And that was a, oh, Larissa would know the name for it. She was an English major. Uh, When a word sounds like what it is, like if you say a word and it sounds onomatopoeia, Is that it? Where you say a word. So the the Greek word howl, um, it sounded like when you howl. Like when you say the Greek word, it sounds like someone howling. Um, So it was a very graphic thing to read out loud. Now, whenever you see an exhortation in scripture to weep and howl, it was usually a graphic and prophetic way of saying, you will have a reason to weep and howl soon. Whenever these words are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's always in the context of judgment. So this indicates for us in our passage, especially with the rest of it, that the terrible troubles that are ahead of them are not earthly suffering but condemnation and punishment on the judgment day from God. So for those who are unrighteously rich, who use their wealth to harm and exploit others instead of helping others, those who hoard wealth for themselves in greed Weep and howl, because there is a judgment coming against you that will make you weep and howl. Verses 2 to 3, your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. Like I said, this is a nice, easy passage this week, so... Um, nothing intense here. So this first verdict uh, or judgment against the rich has to do with the worthlessness of the worldly goods that they have so carefully accumulated for themselves. And James singles out three classes of material goods here. First, he says wealth, um, and that's not a great translation. The, the Greek word really would be better understood uh, as a reference to crops or harvest, so it's really not a great translation. Um, when he says your wealth has rotted... It's your crops and harvest that you've stored up in barns has rotted. Fine clothes, and then gold and silver. And really, this is just kind of a summation of uh, the various types of wealth they would have had at that time. So it's really all the things you store up for yourself. And these all really reflect Old Testament and Jewish teachings as well, about the foolishness of placing any hope or reliance in material things. And these aren't, always, these aren't things we necessarily today consider as uh, signs of wealth. Um, so like clothing, for example, he changes it to fine clothing here, but originally it would have just been clothing. And to us, that seems kind of weird, like everyone has clothes, but in the first century, clothing was a sign of someone's wealth because most of the poor class only had one set of clothes. So if you even had three or four changes of clothes, you were rich. And that's kind of weird for us to think about today. Clothing was also used as currency or collateral. So when you see the soldiers fighting over Jesus' clothes. So when he says that your clothes are moth-eaten rags, it's literally commodities and currency that have rotted. And that's the way we should interpret that statement. Not only will wealth bring no long-lasting benefit, its decay will literally testify against the rich at the final judgment. It's the moth-eaten rags and the rot and the tarnished gold and silver that are testifying against the rich, and that brings a guilty verdict upon them. The reason for this judgment may have just been because their efforts went into earthly possessions, but the hoarding of wealth also appears to be condemned because by hoarding wealth, we aren't helping the poor and the marginalized in society. The worldly mindset is that our lives are about securing our own well-being, when in reality, when we are blessed with anything, God wants us to use those blessings to bless others, to create an environment around us in which the well-being of others and the praise of God is central. So these verses, uh, as you probably can tell, are very eschatological, or focus on the end times, the final judgment. Uh, And this is what James has in mind when he writes these verses. It's a judgment. By neglecting the marginalized and hoarding wealth, we also store up judgment for ourselves. And the material things we worship on earth will testify against us. And then we get to the crime that they're guilty of in verse 4. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated out of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. So this is the crime that they're charged with. They failed to pay the workers who harvested their crops. Now this is one place uh, in which the NLT does not translate this well. Uh, It says that the workers are the ones crying out at the beginning and that God hears their cries. But I'll read the NIV because it's a little closer to the original Greek and it's a very subtle but important difference. So in NLT it says that the workers cry out. In NIV it says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. So this is interesting because the money, the the literal coins that you failed to pay the workers is crying out against you is what James says. It's a vivid picture. The the coins, um, presumably still in the possession of the rich in their, wherever they keep their money, is portrayed as continually and constantly accusing them of dishonesty. It was as though the very coins were crying out the guilt. And the Greek word here, um, for the unpaid wages or wages held back, it's actually much better translated as defrauded. It's a very intense word that's used. Uh, And so it it portrays a very uh, harsh judgment against the people guilty. And so we talked about at the beginning, when the rich failed to pay their workers, it wasn't a matter of simply paying your phone or power bill on time like for us. The families of the workers would starve that night. And this is a society where credit was not readily available. If you failed to pay your workers promptly, it would jeopardize lives. And this is why sometimes it's kind of hard for us to understand, but in Scripture and in the Old Testament in Israel, withholding wages was not just a sin. It was listed among the worst of sins known to them in the Old Testament. And it is a bit of a cultural hurdle we have to jump over. Because, like I said, by comparison, even those of us who live in Canada in poverty are rich by first century standards. We can't easily understand why withholding one day's wages would have been treated as harshly as murder in Israel, but what we have to realize is they could very easily become the same thing. Withholding wages could easily become a death sentence in the first century. Now the encouragement here for the recipients of the letter was that God had heard their cries; They've reached the ears of God, And in this case, NLT translates it a lot better because uh, the best, the most literal translation is the Lord of hosts. uh, And the best way to translate that into today's language would be the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of the armies of angels. And it gives a lot more intimidating message. The cries of those who have been wronged have each the ears of the one who commands armies of angels, and he will come to defend the oppressed. On the last day. Then verse 5 says, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. So, this is the first of two accusations and indictments against the unrighteously rich. Uh, their, Their indifference that they had towards their fellow humans was rooted in their self centered pleasure and luxury, and it was at the expense of their workers. But in their unrestrained indulgence, they have stored up judgment for themselves. I've talked many times about how God is always most concerned with the hearts of his people. Uh, it's not about putting on a, a, a whitewashed show. Where's your heart? And so in this case, it's very interesting. The Greek literally reads, you have fattened up your hearts in a day of slaughter. The heart was viewed as the center of desire. And here the rich are pictured as giving their hearts everything that it desired without a single ounce of restraint. But the last days have already begun. Scripturally, the last days are considered the period between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. So really, for them, the judgment could begin at any time. Yet the rich, the unrighteously rich, instead of acting and changing to avoid that judgment, They were building up even bigger judgment for themselves by selfishly indulging and storing up treasure at the expense of the vulnerable and the poor. They were literally fattening up their hearts for slaughter like a farmer fattens up a pig. They were building up extra judgment for themselves is what James is saying here. And then in verse 6 he says, You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. This is the final accusation. It's kind of the the pinnacle. Uh, He takes what they were doing and and kind of removes the shroud. So they could say, oh, I'm just not paying them for a day. Uh, But he removes the shroud and says, no, this is what the results of your actions bring. You are condemning and killing people. It's not meant to be figurative. It's meant to be taken literally. By their actions and their selfish indulgence, they'd killed innocent people who weren't even in opposition to them. The vicious connection in this passage between idolatry, mercilessness, and murder is a big part of the guiding logic of James as he sternly warns the rich. Their sin may have seemed small to them, but the implications of it were enormous. And even if they had not physically killed people, their blood was on their hands. All right, so... Now that we're through the really intense passage, let's move to the application piece. And this is a little tricky because we obviously live in a very different society than the audience of this letter did. Uh, So there's a few things I think we do need to keep in mind as we go through and apply this passage. Uh, While this section was not addressed directly to the letter's recipients, it was addressed to those who were oppressing the recipients, I think if we examine our culture... where we're at today, we probably have much more in common with the oppressors than we do the letters recipients. So I do think there is a lot of application here. Um, Like I said before, even um, the the poverty um, in our society does not compare to first century. Now for the most part, the majority of us are not in a position to personally use our money or time to oppress others, I don't think, but at the same time, we, we are on a bigger level, and, and we're going to talk about that a bit. Um, on a societal level, our personal choices both impact and enable systems of oppression. So with all that in mind, there's a few things I want us to keep in mind and remember from this passage, uh, and, and the point is just to have some things to remind you of and reflect on through the week and then allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And if there's anything that we should be convicted of, uh, allow him to do that in our lives. Uh, So there's a few things I want us to remember. The first is that greed blinds us to reality. We think we can build up something for ourselves, but none of it lasts. We get tricked into thinking that the things of this world are worth chasing or that somehow chasing worldly things can be compatible with a holy life. We get tricked into thinking our choices and decisions financially don't have that much impact on the world around us. I think we see that in the first century, where they just thought, well, I'm just not paying my workers in a timely manner so that I can have a little more money for longer. It's not impacting their lives that much. But people were dying. And so it kind of blinds us to the reality of the world. Sir Fred Gatherwood said, greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then we hold on to it hard. And I do believe that is an accurate depiction of someone who does not believe in life after death. But I also think that even though we do believe there is life after death, sometimes we fall into the trap of living like there isn't. And when we let greed control our lives, we're coveting. It, it actually blinds us to the reality that the things of this world don't last and don't matter. It deceives us. The second thing I want you to remember as we leave is that greed causes us to sin against our neighbor. This can happen in a number of ways. First of all, it can cause us to sin against our neighbor directly. And that happens when we're convicted to help someone who is poor or in need, but we ignore that conviction. Remember last week, it is sinful to know the good you ought to do and then not do it. This can also be the stewardship of our time, as well as our money. How we use what we are given directly affects others. If we keep it for ourselves, we're not helping others, or we might be directly uh, impacting other people's lives in a negative way. If we spend all of our time and money on our own comforts and indulgences, when we have extra money after we pay our bills, is the first thing you think of to spend it on something for yourself or to squirrel it away for a rainy day, Now, there isn't anything wrong with that, inherently. In fact, I would say saving money is a good financial practice. And I think too that it's good to treat yourself once in a while, that's that's a good thing. But if that is always what you do when there's a little extra money and you never think to yourself, how could I bless someone else with this? If If that never even crosses your mind, then I would suggest that we are much more focused on our own desires and comforts than we are on helping our neighbor. There was a couple at a church I used to work at a few years ago, and they actually, they were a great couple. Um, they had a whole separate bank account that they would dump extra money into when they had it. Now, they still saved money for themselves, and they still put money away. They still wouldn't treat themselves, but when there was extra money and they knew, I don't need this for myself they would put it in this bank account and this bank account was specifically intended for blessing others in need so if someone needed winter tires they'd just buy them winter tires if someone needed groceries they'd just go get them groceries and the money added up a lot quicker than you'd imagine and when it was set aside they didn't even miss it i'm not saying that we should all open a new bank account but it's about the heart, and there was definitely something about their hearts in that which preached the gospel to many people through their love and their actions. So, the first way we can sin against our neighbor is directly. The second way is indirectly, or enabling a system that exploits the poor. And this is a little more complicated because, especially in our society, it's very hard and potentially impossible to not partake in that type of scenario, that kind of society. But I think it's worth looking at as we consider this passage and consider our roles as well. We may not be personally guilty of directly exploiting others to make us rich, but I would be willing to bet, like I said, probably the majority of our clothes were made by women and children in third world sweatshops. And then it came out on the news this week, Superstore had to pull, or was it just Loblaws, like the bigger... Anyway, grocery store, they had a bunch of tomatoes and tomato sauce they had to pull. It was discovered that it was processed and grown through slave labor in Asia. And all this so that a big corporation can save a few bucks. We may not be personally and individually responsible for creating these systems. And I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily possible or our job to personally and individually fix the whole thing on our own. That's not something I think you can even do, but our decisions and actions definitely enable and sustain these systems of exploitation against our fellow humans. I think that's something that we should be thinking about and considering as well in the decisions we make. The third and final thing I want everyone to kind of take away and think about as you go this week is that greed stores up judgment for ourselves. Now before I say anything, uh, it's time for my weekly reminder that we do not earn our salvation; it is a free gift, and not being perfect does not mean that you have a one-way ticket to hell or anything like that. It's it's not about running a perfect race; it's about running the race. Period. You may fall; that's okay. Now that said, we have to remember that God is concerned with our hearts, and that faith without works is dead. And if we say we believe, but in our lives we no way reflect that belief, then we should be concerned. We live in a society completely built on greed. And again, the things that we enjoy are not inherently sinful, but when our actions, born out of greed, cause harm to others. James says the cry of injustice reaches God's ears. He hears them, and he will not ignore them. Salvation is a free gift, but even so, I do not think this is a warning we should take lightly. So to conclude this week, what you should remember above all else is that greed is destructive. In the pursuit of greed, people are willing to give up their families, prostitute themselves, give up their citizenship, even kill somebody. And I think that we have to realize, and what we should take away from that survey, is that that is the world we live in. We see the results of that throughout the world, but as Christians, we are called to be different we have to recognize the destructiveness of greed and flee from its temptation, whether it's with our finances, our time, or any of our possessions. We should first and foremost seek to honor God because living in greed enables a system of suffering in the world. When we shape our lives around our desires and our impulses, we blind ourselves to the reality of the temporary nature of this life, we think we can build something that lasts, but we can't. In the process of doing this, we sin against our neighbor, both by not helping people who are in need, making our own time and comfort the center of our lives, but even by wasting what others could use. We also sin against our neighbor by enabling systems that exploit the poor and marginalize in the world for our benefit, and we think nothing of it. And in the process of all that, we store up judgment for ourselves because God is a righteous not God and he cannot stand injustice. So as we leave this week, my prayer for us is that we would humble ourselves in his sight. We would consider all these things and ask the Holy Spirit to expose any sin in our lives to us. And if there is sin, convict us to change so that our hearts will be right with him. And we will be ready and willing to help our neighbor, the poor, the marginalized and exploited in the world so that they would see the love and justice of God through us. May we be the tools that God uses to show those people that he has heard their cries. Father God, I thank you so much for the gift of your son and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And I just ask that, as we study your word and as we go out into our lives that you would help us to be servants of you that you would convict us of any sin in our lives that you would help us to reflect you into the world by helping our neighbor by being good stewards and caring for those who need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.